Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is a best-selling author, award-winning speaker, investor, philanthropist, and executive coach who helps teams transform enterprises. He works with top organizations to maximize team performance and achieve transformative outcomes. With over 20 years of experience coaching C-suite executive teams, he is recognized as one of the world's most sought after coaches. He formerly served as CMO of Deloitte and Starwood Hotels, and is currently the founder and chairman of Farazi Greenlight. We are so excited to welcome Keith Farazi. Keith, welcome to the Dale Carnegie podcast. Joe, I got to tell you, this is a huge honor. Dale Carnegie was one of the greatest influences in my young life. My father gave me that book when I was probably 10, and it was an influence on his life as well. So it's a true honor to be here. It's great to have you. I know we've talked about many of the books that you've written, best-selling books, including Never Eat Alone, which connects so deeply to the Dale Carnegie relationship concept. When the reviews first came out of Never Eat Alone, and it was put even in the universe of Dale Carnegie, people said it's the Dale Carnegie of this generation. I literally had tears in my eyes. And I wish my father had been alive at the time. Well, let's talk about your dad. I want to really get to know you a little bit, Keith. Thank and you. I know your dad had a huge impact on your life and your thinking. You talk about him in some of your books. Tell us about your dad. Yeah. So my old man was an unemployed steelworker from Pittsburgh. And my family was an immigrant Italian family. The real focus for me when I was growing up is to watch a man who during the 70s, if anybody would remember, the steel industry of Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh particularly, was crushing down around us. The city was decimated. And to see the pride of a man like my father crushed through such economic devastation in the region, my mom had to become a cleaning lady. I had to, and I understand you were a caddy as well. I had to go become a caddy, not that it was a bad thing to do, but I had to do it because that $20 a day, if I got out, matched my mother's income as a cleaning lady, her $20 a day. So it was meaningful to the family. What I promised myself though, because my dad would come home. And he would say to me and my mom at the dinner table, the foreman, because he was a tow motor operator, the foreman was telling me today to slow down because I was making other members of the workforce and the foreman look bad because his rate was faster than other people's rate. Now, that just crushed my father. And what I realized is what a ridiculous thing. Here we were where we were being beaten by foreign competition. And that was the reason the productivity of the American workforce at that time, particularly in the steel industry, was not what it needed to be to compete on a global landscape. And I made a commitment early on that I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to grow up and I was going to fix that. And I thought I was going to be in politics, maybe. But what I realized along the way is that the job that I had found myself in, which is working with organizations, working with executive teams to truly up-level the way that we work. My mission was, I'm going to change the way the world works. 
the little double entendre within that process. Yeah. Clearly, you've been doing that through your consulting and working with some amazing companies. I just want to go back to your dad for a second, though, because I know it sounds like you and your dad were two pieces of a pie. You spent a lot of time together. Your dad really wanted the best for you. I know you mentioned to me he gave you how to win friends and influence people at 10. He supported you really in your college education and doing things that he couldn't have done himself. First of all, Pop, I think a lot of immigrants, when they come to the United States, they recognize that anything's possible for their children. For me, education was going to be the primary area. My father had no money, so it's not like he could afford to support financially, but he supported with his wisdom and his charisma. And then frankly, this is what he learned from Dale Carnegie. My dad approached the headmaster of a local school, a very private elite school. And he went into that gentleman's office and he said, listen, my son can't afford to go here, but he's a smart kid and I'd love for you to meet him. And he did talk that gentleman into willing to meet me and got me a full scholarship. Now, this was moving from the school that I was in, which wasn't a great school at fifth grade into this new school. And that was really the turning point, right? My father used to always say, don't ever be afraid to ask. The worst anybody could ever say is no. And that is exactly how he lived his life, particularly to support his family. Now, once I got on that path, he did the same thing to a headmaster of an all boys boarding school in the Pennsylvania region called Kiski Prep. And once again, it was the next step for me. And once I was on that route, it was really on my own shoulders at this stage, because I had learned those skills, a combination of what I learned from Dale and what I learned from my dad. I had learned those skills myself. And that's what I used to get into Yale University. But it wasn't just that. There was a tipping point there. There's a wonderful story about caddying. But Joe, you said you were a caddy. Wasn't I was, yeah. Music? Probably not as good as you were. It sounds like you were really good at it. I did it for a number of years. It was hard work. And I learned a lot. It was my first real job. Well, I'll tell you what I learned about it. And it wasn't from the caddy yard. My dad would get me out of bed in the morning. He said, Keith, let's show up at the golf course a half an hour early. And I'm like, Pop, there's nobody there. Half an hour early to when it opens is nobody there. If I had showed up on time, nobody would be there, right? Because the golfers don't show up for an hour or two later. So why in the world, Pop, am I getting up? And he would just say it again. Anytime my dad started repeating himself, I called it immigrant Tourette's. I had no idea why he was saying it, but it didn't matter. He would just blurt stuff out and I just followed along. Didn't have a choice because he was driving. So I go up at the golf course and I'm walking around and I would notice things. I would notice where the pins were placed. I just started picking up golf again, which I love this sport. But knowing where the pin's placed is important if you're a real good golfer. It's the difference between, you know, taking a nine iron or an eight iron to hit where you need to be. I would also notice if the greens and how the greens were cut every day. And that gave me knowledge that other caddies didn't have. Now, the final thing I had was I had chutzpah, which I joke is an Italian term. It's actually Yiddish. It's very similar, which is the gumption, right? I had the drive. The ambition. I needed that 20 bucks, Joe. That 20 bucks was so important to my family. And as a result, I was humping my butt down the fairway. I never lost a ball. I would go if I needed to, you know, wade in to get a ball from the water, whatever needed. I was incredibly driven, right? I needed to be. Now you put all that together, and there was a wonderful woman named Mrs. Poland. Carol Poland was the best woman golfer at the country club. She had me golfing for her once. And interestingly enough, right after that, she said, Keith, are you available to caddy me for me tomorrow? I was like, yes, yes, ma'am. See, we would sit up there and sometimes we would sit up there in the caddy yard for five days and we would get out once. Because there's a lot of unemployed people. A lot of people needed jobs. 
And here I was getting out two days in a row. Wow, that was a big deal. And I did. Second day, I caddied for her. She said, Keith, would you caddy for me the next day? I was like, holy cow. Now, this is like a huge deal. All I wanted to do was not screw it up. Right. And so I did something that was the opposite of what I probably should have done, but I kept my head down. I was like, I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to screw this up. You know, because the last thing most golfers want is a chatty caddy, right? You're there to do your job. And I just did my job. Well, as we were going around in that third round, she started asking me questions like, uh, what do you want to do with your life, Keith? Well, I don't know. I want to go to college. Now, I had big aspirations, but I didn't want to speak up. Now, the other thing that was going on in my life is I was afraid of rich people. Their kids teased me at school because, remember, I was going to a rich school. I didn't have those kind of clothes. And I was really afraid of revealing and being vulnerable to a population that I didn't understand. I mean, all my friends, all my parents' friends, all workers. And here I am talking to somebody who's at the country club. And I was just intimidated. I kept my head down. Over time, she started pushing me more and more to open up. And one time she literally said, damn it, Keith. I asked you, what do you want to do with your life? What she was implying was, you're a special kid. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I know you're going to laugh. But my dad says, if I work real hard and I study real hard, I can do anything. I can be president of the United States. And she said, yes, you could. There's no question. The next couple of sessions after that, she invited the local congressman into her foursome. And we played golf and he took me under his wing. And he told me that I should get involved in speech and debate. He told me I could use his library. And it was because of that that I ended up winning the national speech and debate tournament in the United States. And that was my ticket into Yale University. Now, you take all of that, because I know it's a long story and I apologize, but you take all of that and you ask, what's the big takeaway? And the big question was, why would she do that? Why would she go so far out of her way? And a lot of people think, well, you are a charismatic kid. She was paying it forward. All of these things that were about her. But in reality, what I realized was there are a lot of good kids in that category. She put more energy into me because I showed up at the golf course a half of an hour early for her. I was a better caddy by 20 to 30%. And by being a better caddy, by being more ambitious, being more driven, worrying about her, caring more about her, that made her care about me. I'm not going to suggest it sounds as good as magnanimity and basically pay it forward. But the reality is in the early stage, if you want someone's attention, right, be generous to them. There is a sense of reciprocity in relationships. And if you lead with generosity, if you lead with disproportionately doing things for others, you know, people have read my book, Joe, and they'll reach out to me. There was an element in the book where I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking for 15 minutes and a cup of coffee. Right. But Joe, I get hundreds of emails a day. And some people reach out to me and they just say, Hey, can I get 15 minutes and a cup of coffee? And today, unfortunately, the answer is typically no. But others reach out to me. They've done their research. They've read my books. They've looked online about what I'm passionate about. And they'll reach out to me and they'll say, Hey, I understand that your foundation is really interested in the future of business and organization design and human capital. I've got some extra time and I've got interest in the subject. Is there anything you're interested in that I could research for you? Now that gets my attention, right? Or I understand you have foster kids and your foundation is focused on foster care. I'd like to donate some time or 
I'd like to introduce you to somebody who also is philanthropic around foster care. That gets my attention. If you lead with generosity, then you get the permission to show up and start building the relationship. Does that make sense, Joe? It makes complete sense. You know, you had people who helped you. People want to do things for other people, certainly as a parent. And it's a reminder to all of us about the impact we can have on the lives of anyone around us, whether it's our kids, whether it's people we work with, people we meet. And so we can have a huge impact, a life-changing impact, or just a positive one. Many people look at networking as a one-way street. I'm looking for someone to help me. You took a lot of ideas from networking from these experiences. And part of what you said was, you know, I had to come prepared to contribute. I always say that when I show up today, as I've now refined this over the years, but when I show up in any meeting, I'm prepared with five packets of generosity. Now, that means that before the meeting, I really thought about it. And I've said, what are five things that I can do that would be a really generous to this individual meeting. By the way, I could tell you did that, Joe. Number one, you showed your admiration for the work that I had done. I deeply appreciate that. Thank you. You also did your homework. You had read, you watched podcasts, you've done things that I've done. That's a big deal. Showing up, I've got people who've never read my book and want my advice. I'm like, I've written five books. And if you want my advice, why don't you start there? When that's exhausted your capacity, to get advice from me, you show with a contextualized question said, so I've read these books and here's what I've taken out of them. But I'm really curious about that. I haven't been able to figure out from your books is X. I'm like, that's interesting. Cause then you've actually shown me something that I still need to communicate to people. Right. And that's even a benefit to me. You can be congenial. You can be, you know, a charismatic individual and that in and of itself, you know, is an act of generosity. Or as I said, you can research where you can add value to a person, right? Those are the things that really are the level of generosity that I'm suggesting. One of the things that when people finish reading my first book, Never Eat Alone, they have two fundamental takeaways. Joe, and you alluded to it. Used to be that networking is about what can I get from people? And I said, no, it's what can you give? Because the first act of building a relationship with somebody is arrest their attention. What can you give to somebody? The second thing is when you show up, be authentic, be real. Right. If you're transactional and you're asking for stuff, you immediately started this interview by connecting me to your audience by talking about my father and my upbringing. Right. That is a way to build empathy and connection. You did that purposely. You're an expert podcaster and you knew that if you started with that, your audience would lean in. But that's true for all of us in any relationship that we have with people. The more interpersonal, the more vulnerable you get, believe it or not. You also said something earlier, which I wanted to contextualize a bit, unpack. You said that we as parents like to pay it forward and be generous and make an impact on people's lives. There's a piece of advice underneath that that I think our viewers have to listen to, which is it's not just that people are inclined to do that. They are. It's that if you don't follow up and show them that their advice has changed your life, then they never get the value of it and they won't do it again. So when you reach out to somebody and you're looking for advice, I remember when I was a very young man in this rich school, my friend, George Love was his name. George's dad was a lawyer. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go into politics, I need to be a lawyer. When I reached out to George, I said, George, can I come home with you someday and meet your dad and talk about what it's like to be a lawyer? Which, of course, you know, George asked his dad, his dad said, of course. And I sat in his den and 
talk to him about being a lawyer, what it took, et cetera. By the way, it intimidated the heck out of me because I realized the amount of reading of stuff that I figured was predominantly nonsense was something that I was like, oh, I'm not sure I want to be a lawyer anymore, but it was good information, right? So I did that. But then what I did is when I got home, I instantly thanked him, right? I think I called him or I sent him a letter. I forget what we did back then before emails or texts. And the other thing I did was some of the pieces of advice he gave me, I told him that I'm doing it, right? I said, you suggested I get a couple of books. I bought those books. And so it's so important that people feel that they are making an impact and they're seeing the follow through because their investment in you pays a dividend of your success and their pride. Now, George Love's dad was prideful that the investment he made was growing dividends. That makes sense? It makes sense. And what I also love and appreciate because you do that follow-up in an authentic way, right? I mean, in other words, you're doing something. You say, hey, I bought this book. And then you can follow up even a month later. Boy, you know, I read this book. Thank you so much. I took the following things away from it. Right. And you mean it and you're expressing appreciation. So you've gained from it and you're going back to him. So to me, you have an initial relationship, but to develop that relationship over time, it's the constant, as you said, going back and giving that recognition. And and let's talk a little bit about vulnerability because I was even afraid of opening my mouth with Mrs. Poland. My family was pretty traditional, old school Italian. Vulnerability, that's not something you share, right? I have this analogy that a good productive relationship is one that's also caring of each other. Two people, they're in a productive relationship. They care for each other. And that care for each other needs to be, if you're enjoying a new relationship with somebody, you can accelerate it. You can make it happen faster by growing the care. Now, if I show up and all we talk about is business and all we talk about is what I can do for you, what you can do for me, that's very transactional. There's not much caring in that. If we show up and we start talking about our struggles, past struggles is an easy thing to talk about, right? That's an easy level of vulnerability that creates empathy. Empathy is the bridge that goes from a transactional relationship to a caring relationship, empathy. And there's this gate, right? There's this gate and this golden key that opens to this bridge of empathy and it's called vulnerability. You got to be vulnerable and authentic in order to cross that empathy bridge to get to a good relationship. So how do you overcome? I mean, the thing that holds people back from being vulnerable is fear. And you said it even earlier. You said, hey, look, I was afraid. And I know in networking or in reaching out to people, many people have fear. Fear is something that holds us back. So how did you overcome the fear to start talking? Every insecurity and fear is overcome from practice. There's actually a psychological term called effective forecasting mortality salience. And it's basically a fancy word of saying, I can't possibly do that, I would die, right? Effectively forecasting the worst scenario to the point of death, mortality. Well, you won't die. And the only way you'll realize you won't die is by tasting it and trying a little bit and realize that wasn't that bad. Similar thing, like if anybody of you are single and going to somewhere and you're like, oh my God, he or she is so beautiful. And I'd love to go up and talk to them. I couldn't possibly do that. I'd die. No, you're not going to die. The only way to figure that out is to go. Now, sometimes it helps to have a wingman or a wing gal, right? Where a friend of yours helps bridge that gap of insecurity or fear. All of this applies to life, right? Because the fear of talking to Mrs. Pollard, now she happened to be my savior. She dragged it out of me. Not everyone's going to drag it out of you. So the next time you have a conversation, try it. Try a little kernel. 
So as I said, the first thing you could share is some struggle you've experienced in the past, but overcome. Given that you've overcome it, it's easier to share than something you're currently struggling with, right? Because you might think that something I'm currently struggling with, it's not yet overcome. And therefore, I'm worried about people's perception of me by virtue of struggling. But a past fear or struggle, like I grew up poor, is beautiful. Now, back in the day, I would have been afraid to share that because I was embarrassed of being poor. And so I didn't even want to share that I had grown up poor. I think everything is about practice. And part of what can help us, in my experience, and I love your feedback on this, is the idea of mindset. People do, generally speaking, want to help other people. I mean, someone had called me not long ago and said, hey, would you be on my podcast? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. And the person said, gosh, you know, I was afraid to ask you. It's like, why? I'm happy to do it. And I think if we have the mindset, which is, you know, people, generally speaking, do want to be helpful. That is true. And I think, Joe, in the average human with the other average human, you will generally find that your requests are received well. And let me give you a little bit of a formula associated with this. There's different factors here. One of them is how busy is an individual and how big is your request? The busier somebody is, the more important somebody is, or sometimes even the more important they think they are, (laughs) combined with the level of your request or the type of your request is a balancing act. So therefore, an innocuous request, a small request, right, is more than likely to be received. There are people, Joe, people I know who I've said, hey, I've got a book coming out. Can I jump on your podcast? And like, oh, geez, Keith, you know. And what they're thinking is, I've got the Dalai Lama lined up. I've got such and such lined up. You don't meet the threshold for what I'm doing right now. Okay, I get it. But now the question is, how do I overcome that? So I may not be the Dalai Lama on this person's podcast. This actually just happened to me recently. And I got bumped by the Dalai Lama. But what happened was I thought, okay, who is this person? Okay, I get who this person is. I'm not gonna say their name. And I know that they're in a wonderful relationship. And I know that their spouse is in XYZ business. And I bet I can help them. So I'm like, okay, great. I got a no. Then what I did is I realized I didn't think I was gonna get a no because I thought the relationship was strong enough that I was gonna get a yes even though maybe I wasn't worthy of a Dalai Lama appearance. So what I did was I said, that's great. I need to invest more in this relationship. So I'm building the relationship before I need it. Maybe they they won't reverse their no, but I'm going to have a long life and I want to build this relationship more and add more value to this person. I was deceiving myself and thinking I had had enough value. So I started by asking for dinner with their spouse and my spouse. And we ended up having dinner. I got to know them better. And I started investing more and not just the individual, but their spouse, which a lot of people do with their kids. I mean, I have wonderful relationships. Literally just this morning, somebody flipped me a speech and said, Keith, I can't do this speech. Will you do it? One of the most prestigious companies in the world asking me to come in and speak. And I was like, Mark, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And Mark said, no problem. I was trying to think about who to give this to, but I remembered years ago, you were really generous coaching my daughter when she was thinking about what to do. And I wanted to give this to you. This was something that had happened 10 years ago, right? But in the back of his head, he remembered that I had helped his daughter. Constantly invest in generosity. At some point, you realize some people are users. And you invest in them, invest in them, invest in them. And they never really pay back. And that's okay. You don't need to be resentful. Just invest less then. But sometimes you never know what's going on in a person's life. You think they may be a user. But in reality, they're going through a breakup or their mother is suffering from Alzheimer's and they're just in their own head, which is God bless them, right? 
So I've always lived my life. You'd be as generous as you possibly can. And that is your investment in the universe and the universe pays back. Yeah, it's really true. And it seems like the universe always pays back more. I have found that no matter how much I've given something or some event or some group, it seems like even though I'm not necessarily looking for it to come back, it comes back more and bigger. Back in the day in the 90s, I was a young man in my 20s and I was working for a big company called Deloitte. And the CEO, I heard him on stage say, one day we're going to be equal to Accenture and McKinsey. And I said, okay, that's interesting. What does he mean by that? And of course, that means performance and quality, et cetera. But he also meant brand. We're going to be as important as. And I thought, you know what? We're doing a really crappy job of marketing. Now, I'm in my 20s, just graduated from Harvard Business School. And I said, I'm going to go do a research project. I'm going to research what does it take to thrive in professional services market. And I thought, okay, well, I'm a student at Harvard. I'm going to write a paper on it. It wasn't even a paper that I needed to write. It was one I wanted to write. I called a professor, his name's Len Schlesinger, and I said, Len, can I write a paper for your course? And maybe I can maybe not take the test. I hate the test anyway. And he said, great, go for it. So I called the chief marketing officer at McKinsey, Bill Madisoni. And I said, I want to write a paper on this subject. Can I interview you? I said, I'm currently working at Deloitte and I'm really interested in professional services marketing. And I did the same thing with Accenture and I did five other firms. And I said, what I'll do is I'll give you all the white paper back, which is the shared wisdom of all of you. And they said, yes. And I wrote the white paper and I sent it back to everybody, including the CEO of Deloitte. And the CEO of Deloitte called me up personally, never met me. And he said, young man, I just got a white paper from you about the future of professional services marketing. That's probably one of the more insightful pieces I've read. What is the deal here? And I said, sir, I saw you on stage. I work for your organization, as you know. I took to heart what you said. You wanted to be at par with McKinsey and Andrew. Here's how you do that. Long and the short of it is, I became the youngest chief marketing officer at Deloitte. The youngest chief marketing officer in the Fortune 500, the first chief marketing officer at Deloitte, and the youngest partner ever elected. There's a time for every one of you listening right now. The pandemic has just hit. I have no idea when you're going to be listening to this podcast. It could be decades in the future. It could be whenever. But we are going through an inflection point. At an inflection point, it's your opportunity to step in and fill the void. We just did a research project that culminated in Harvard's top pick of a book called Competing in the New World of Work. We interviewed 2,000 executives over a period of those two years of the pandemic, 2020 and 2021. And what we did is we gathered all of their insights and best practices of how do they lead differently? How do they avoid being whipsawed in the volatile world that we're living in today? What does the world of the workforce look like today? All of this is documented in this book. And for every one of you who wants to be a leader someday, it is your roadmap for being a better leader. But there's an opportunity here that's better than you just reading the book and doing it for yourself. The opportunity is you read the book and you reach out to a committee. Every company in the world has a committee on going back to work or a committee on the future of work or something like that. You reach out to them and represent yourself as carrying with you the knowledge of the benchmark of 2,000 executives. You can put yourself, leapfrog yourself from a new employee like I was in my 20s at a place like Deloitte, you could put yourself right into the middle of the dialogue of the future of work with the CHRO, 
the presidents, the CIOs, the CEOs of your business, just with this opportunity of this inflection point, which is an opportunity for you to step into the void. So I just wanted to use this as an example, right, of what can be done at any point of us investing disproportionately into the success of others, in this case, the executives of your company. Well, it's also following the role model that you experienced yourself. I mean, so you had this vision, you did the white paper, you went to the CEO, and you were able to both contribute greatly to them, and they saw that in you and then also rewarded it. And likewise, it sounds like competing in the new world of work, I mean, you've done such extensive research that someone having the value of that at their fingertips makes them more valuable themselves, and they can contribute more to the people in which they work. Exactly. Let me ask you a little bit about interpersonal skills, um, because someone might be reluctant to reach out to the CEO. They may not have the confidence to do that or to the CMO or CFO, whatever the case might be. What advice do you have for people about that? Same thing what we said a second ago. You mentioned mindset, right? Some of us are born with a certain mindset of how we think about other people. We're either fearful or we are charismatic and embracing. I actually am an introvert but I've learned to be an extrovert through practice. There's a wonderful phrase in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, which is what Dalai Lama said was God's gift to humanity for the last 200 years. And there's lots of reasons for that. I wrote a book called Who's Got Your Back that really talks about how small groups of people can transform each other's lives. And that's what AA does for people who are alcoholics. But there's a simple phrase in it. The reason I wanted to say that and spend enough time on it is is if any of you are struggling or know people who are struggling with addictions, there's wonderful programs out there that help. But for the rest of us who may not have an actual addiction, there's a methodology to follow. And that's why you should learn about the 12 steps, which is why I wrote, who's got your back. But in terms of AA, you don't think your way into a new way of acting. You act your way into a new way of thinking. So a lot of us talk about mindsets and we talk about building mindsets, the mindset of, I need to reach out and build relationships with people. That's a mindset that either some people have and some people don't. The practice is what builds the competency. So if you're an introvert, your practice makes you a learned extrovert. It may never be as fun to you as it is to a person who is a natural extrovert, but you'll get better and better at it. Like I am not ever going to be a concert violinist, but I suspect if I practiced, I could play Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know? So all of this can be better than we are. And that's what I'm going to suggest to people, which is the basic principle of reaching out is what you need to do. Now, this idea of using competing in the new world of work as a way to engender a brand for yourself inside of your company, You don't have to be some big charismatic person. In fact, what's wonderful of what we learned in the last couple of years is that we are increasing the value of what I call asynchronous collaboration. The companies that got it wrong are the companies that moved physical meetings into virtual meetings and stayed there. And then they got tired and they wore out. They had this thing called Zoom Gloom where everyone was just meeting after meeting after meeting. The best companies move from physical meetings to some remote meetings, but a lot of collaboration in documents and in the cloud and collaboration outside of being physically proximate. If your natural inclination is not to be a good speaker, the gift of gab, right? My dad used to call it the gift of gab. If your quality isn't that, 
than your gift of writing could be. Because then all you got to do is you got to be really thoughtful. You can write it five times until you get it really right. You write a beautiful letter that says, you know, I've read this book and here's what I took away from it. And I think that we as a company could benefit from X, Y, and Z. Now you've given yourself with really deliberate thoughtfulness into this letter that doesn't require you to show up and have a gift to gap. You can play to your strengths. I mean, if your strength in that particular case is writing, I do think you've touched on something we really should reinforce, which is, you know, you're talking about practice, you know, life is too short. We cannot let fear hold us back. At the end of the day, there's a great saying, and Dale Carnegie quotes it in How to Win Friends. I think it's from Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is do the thing you fear and the death of fear is certain. At some point, when we do something, we build these things up in our minds that they're so intimidating. And then we do them. We're like, that was it. That wasn't so bad. I can do that. So you build confidence. What I like about what you've said here is, you know, you can start at a place where you have confidence and you can leverage that even to build more confidence, but we've got to take the risk. We got to take command, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, you got to push, you've got to push. And this is where I remember I mentioned the wingman or the wing gal earlier. And this is the power of peer to peer, the power of who's got your back. Having a group of people who encourage each other, kick you in the butt, move you forward, right? It's so important, so important to all of our success that we've got to make sure we take those steps out in front with each other, hand in hand. So, and so having you, that posse is important. So what do you do? Do you actively ask people? Do you tell someone, yes. hey, look, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm going to ask you to hold me accountable. I mean, yeah, what, I call them accountability buddies. I have lifeline groups. And I, I create a new word, by the way, Joe, which I hope you'll use. I call it co-elevation, where a group of people commit to collaborate and go higher together. Co-elevation. And I want you to come up with your co-elevation team. I mean, that to me is the real key. If you're an alcoholic, you have it in your meetings. If you're in a church group, you have it in your men's prayer breakfast or your women's prayer breakfast or whatever. We all need our co-elevation teams. In the work, we should be building in our teams, right? We should be building it in our teams. Well, I love that you also talk about board of advisors as a concept. I mean, this really goes around both ways. You know, we need people to help us. We need to help other people. It's a symbiotic and really a beautiful thing when we start, as you had said, from a place of generosity and thinking about other people. And then we've got other people who are thinking about us. I think about my marriage. You know, you've got this cycle of reciprocity. My wife does wonderful things for me. I do wonderful things for her. It repeats. So we can do the same thing with other people. Keith, this has been really insightful. I know we could keep on going. Maybe we'll have a part two to this, but in the meantime- I'd love it. And maybe maybe by that time, I think I'm going to start a podcast. I'd love to have you on it when your book comes out. Well, thank you. I'd appreciate that. It'd be a lot of fun. Any final uh, pieces of advice for our audience? When there's an inflection point, there's an opportunity. Too many people look at like pandemic hit and everyone's scared. I looked at it and I said, where's the opportunity? People are going to eventually come out of this and want to know how. So I started a research project. I said, let's never go back to work. Let's only go forward to work. And I created goforwardtowork.com. I started engaging in this research. When I was sat and I watched the CEO of Deloitte and he said, we want to be that way someday. We want to be equal to McKinsey and Accenture. I stepped into the void. I stepped into the opportunity. I guess the point is some people don't hear those opportunities. They just hear them as interesting, right? But try to listen for opportunities to be of service. That's it. Listen for opportunities to be of service. Then bust your butt to be of service disproportionately 
and you will be disproportionately rewarded. I think that's the takeaway of this conversation. Well, it's a great takeaway. It really is. And this is a show about taking command, you know, and it's work and I take yeah, and find an opportunity for other people and actually, you know, make something happen. So Keith, terrific interview. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Joe, so much. And look forward to helping you with the book. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.